morning we want to do. Uh, some of you know that we celebrated 20 years as a church this last fall, and uh, one of the things we've been doing the last year or so is just kind of taking a look at our organizational structure, making some updates to our org chart, uh, and as a part of that, we've, we've really strengthened what we call our senior leadership team at Alpine Church. Now, those, before I explain what that is, uh, many of you know the leadership here at this campus, Pastor John, and you're, you have an overseer team at this campus. All of our campuses have that. Alpine's a multi-site church, so we have six English-speaking campuses, two Spanish-speaking campuses, and every campus has their own leadership structure. Um, but our church is a non-denominational church that also has an overall leadership team as well, and so both of those teams work in tandem. And so our senior leadership team is made up of two different groups, okay? So our senior leadership team over the overall structure of Alpine Church, all of the campuses combined. Those two groups are, number one, what we call the executive team, and that's a team of four of us pastors who serve on that executive team. I'm on the team. Pat, your pastor, John, is actually on that team as well. Pastor John is the executive campus pastor. He doesn't just serve at this campus, but he actually gives, some of you don't know this, he's kind of a big deal. But he gives, he gives yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't act like a big deal, but he's kind of a big deal. Um, he gives leadership to all of the other campus pastors at all the other campuses. So he doesn't just give leadership here, but he gives leadership to them in an executive capacity. So he's on the executive team as well. But there's another team that makes up our senior leadership team. So it's the executive team, and then it's the second group is what we call the governing board. And the governing board is made up of uh, six godly men from around our campuses who give sort of overall leadership to sort of the corporate side of Alpine Church. The executive team really gives leadership to the spiritual side overall of Alpine Church. The governing board gives leadership kind of the financial and the corporate side of it as well. And what we've been doing in the last couple of months is we're trying to get them to come and join us so that, so that our campuses could at least see them and they could see our campuses as well. And so this morning we have four of those six with us today and I want to invite them to come up. Would you welcome these guys real quick as they come up? All right, so let me just real quick introduce who these guys are and where, what campus they attend. This is Joel Peterson, a good friend of mine uh, who attended our Layton campus, and now he, he's, last year and a half or so, he's been helping out at our Riverdale campus, um, and he's done a great job there. He's the chair of our board. Uh, we were like, we need the best looking of all these guys to be the chair of the board. Sorry, guys, I had to, I had to say it. So, Joel, we appreciate you. And this is Troy Nye. Troy attends our West Haven campus with his wife, Shanna, and she's actually here with him today as well. Uh, I love this guy. He is a servant. He's got such a servant's heart, and, um, and, and he's actually a musician as well, as is his wife. So they serve on the worship team at West Haven campus and on the board. Appreciate you, Troy. This is, this is Jim. Jim Allison. Jim, is, uh, Jim attends our Layton campus. He has for a long time, since really before we started it, right? Yeah, he was at Riverdale, at a Riverdale campus, and then when we launched our Layton campus 12 or 13 years ago, he and his wife and their kids, at the t their daughters at the time, who are now gr graduated and out of, the, out of the home, so they've been a part of our Layton campus for a long, long time, and uh, we're just so glad you're on the team. Jim has experience with building. He works for uh, Big D Construction, so he's kind of a big deal, too, um, but he's really been helpful for us as, we're get, as, we, you know, as we grow as a church. We'll, we'll continue to do building projects. We've got one right now in the works at Syracuse. So he's been really helpful 
for that. So thank you, Jim. And then and Jim's wife is here as well, um, Holly over here, so you can meet her if you want to after this service. And then Dave Neidert is here. Dave, actually, so you corrected me in the first service, Dave attended our Riverdale campus. And then when we opened this campus, he and his wife, because they live in Manaway, they came up here and attended here. So some of you might recognize Dave from back in the day, maybe seven, eight years ago when you attended here. Eight years ago? Yeah, yeah. A little shout out. You guys are all like, he's the big deal, right? Because he attended here. Um, <laughs> then, then Dave said, we need to go to Brigham City. We need a campus in Brigham City. And I loved his heart for that. Uh, he said, I want to be able to invite my friends and, uh, and neighbors and family. And so as we prayed about it, these guys, Dave and his wife Sue, really are the, really the pillars. They're the, they're the founders, essentially, of our Brigham City campus. And, and so we have a campus there that is just doing really, really well. So Dave's been a leader for us. He's been on a finance board for years. And, uh, and he's just, you do a great job with us on the governing board. So thank you and Sue for your leadership. Two more guys that weren't able to join us today, um, Corey Burdener and Travis Canfield uh, haven't been able to join us today. But I just wanted to invite Pastor John to come up. And would you just join us again? These guys, we're going to pray for, for them, for their marriages. Uh, and we're going to pray for us as a group as well, that God would just continue to give us leadership as, a, as an overseer team. We meet monthly. We pray together. Uh, we deal with financial stuff. We look at the health of the church. And that's kind of what these guys are tasked with. So would you join me as we pray for these guys together? Father God, we thank you for these men. Thank you for uh, personally what they mean to me. And I, and I pray first for their families and for their marriages, God, that you would give them just strong marriages, that they would be examples for all of us here in the church. Um, God, as your, as your leaders go, so goes the church. And so I pray for all of these men and the two that aren't able to join us in their marriages and their kids. And God, we pray for us collectively that you would give us wisdom as we make decisions for Alpine Church. God, I know you've, you've brought us through a lot in 20 years, and we've gotten to see a lot of people uh, and the life change in so many people, and we're so grateful for that. And I pray, Lord, that these next 20 years would be even more fruitful. And so give these men wisdom as we seek your will for Alpine Church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Jim reminded me Jordan Love is starting for Green Bay today. Do you guys know that? <laughs> so just, we'll be short so you can get home and watch that because that's kind of a big thing for you guys today. Hey, I wanted to say thanks to these guys. And if you want to, these guys will be here with us after the service. So feel free to come on up, shake their hands or uh, just in encourage them, get to know them, meet them personally. Uh, and if you have any other questions for, for me or about our structure of Alpine, don't, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, talk, with, talk with us afterward or shoot us an email or shoot Pastor John an email. All right, you ready to get into the seven deadly sins? That was really unconvincing. You're like, no, let's go home and watch Jordan Love. Okay. We're going to do the seven deadly sins first. Uh, the seven deadly, for those of you who... who who don't know, maybe you're not aware of what the seven deadly sins are, you're not actually going to find a list of the seven deadly sins in the Bible, like, kind of like we find it in uh, the fruit of the Spirit, right? There's a list in the Bible of the fruit of the Spirit. You can find it. You can point to it. There's no place in the Bible where it says, this is the list of the seven deadly sins. The truth is, all sin is deadly, right? So even though we're going to look at seven deadly sins, there's nothing 
super special about these. They're all in the Bible. They're just not all in one spot in the Bible in one list. Seven Deadly Sins was a thing that a Catholic monk came up with in the Dark Ages. He actually came up with eight deadly sins. And then a pope, a pope narrowed it down to seven deadly sins. And then a couple years, you know, sometime after that, some famous classical authors like Dante wrote about the seven deadly sins. So this is why it's in our culture. And of course, people have made movies about the seven deadly sins. Maybe that's what you think of today when you think of the seven deadly sins. But we're going to take a look at them today to really you know, kind of dig into these things and allow God to examine our own hearts and do what he wants to do in our lives. I want to start with a serious big idea, though. The seven deadly sins, here's how I want you to think of, of them. They're bad habits that destroy our ability to love God, to love others, and to love ourselves. That's actually a great way to think about sin in general. Sin is a bad habit, whether it's an actual thing that you do or a thing that you fail to do or a thought that you have. Those are habits too. Or an attitude that you have. That can, you can have habitual attitudes that are sinful. So sins, think of it like this. It's a bad habit that keeps you from loving. That's it. Some Pharisees came to Jesus years, thousands of years ago and, he, and they said, hey, what's the most, of all the rules in the rule book, what's the most important rule? And Jesus, they were... They were expecting Jesus to maybe give one of the Ten Commandments because some people, maybe you're here today, some people think about life and religion and sin and whatever. Some people think about it in terms of a list. There's a list of do's and don'ts, and that's how religious people think about it. I'm telling you this because I want you to know that's not how we think about it, and that's not how Jesus thinks about it. Because I know you're like, okay, we're doing a seven deadly sin series, so you must obviously think about sin in terms of lists, because here's a list of seven deadly sins. But at the outset, I want to I just debunk that thought. And I want you to know that, that the, big, the big idea around sin is that it keeps you from loving God. So when, when the Pharisee said, what's the most important rule in the rule book, Jesus didn't come back with any of the rules. Jesus actually came back with an idea. And the idea he came back with was, he said the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's the Shema. We did a series earlier this year, or last year maybe, on the Shema. It's the, the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then he said, and the second, they didn't ask for two, but he gave them two. He was kind of like a parent. You know, you give them just a little extra than what they come for. He says, and the second, so the first one is love God, and the second one is love your neighbor. And the third one is love yourself. So love the Lord your God. What's the biggest rule in the rule book? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So in, in essence, what Jesus' response was to people who wanted to think spiritually in terms of do's and don'ts, his response to that was this. Love. That's what it's about. That's what life's about. That's what faith is about. It's about love. It's not about our list of rules. It's about love. So what that means is sin keeps you from loving. That's the easiest, that's the best way to think about sin. Sin keeps you from loving someone else. It keeps you from loving your parents, young people. keeps you from loving your kids, parents. It keeps you from loving your spouse, husbands and wives. It keeps you from loving your neighbor. It keeps you from loving people at work. So when we look at these seven deadly sins, I want you to think about it in terms of how 
these sins keep you from having a real, meaningful, helpful, value-adding relationship with some other person in your life. See, religious people never think about like that, think about life like that. Religious people think about do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, for the sake of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. But followers of Jesus try to think like Jesus, and we think about it differently. Graham Tomlin, the author, writes in his book, Seven Deadly Sins, if you want to read a book to go along with this series, this is the one I recommend. Buy the one that, there's two versions of it on Kindle, buy the one that has a Kindle edition, that's the newer one. And here's what Graham Tomlin says, I love it. He says, the emergence of goodness in us is not a matter of strenuous moral exertion on our part, but of responding to the love of God, who looked for us long before we ever looked for him, and working together with the Holy Spirit, who tirelessly works to bring some likeness to Jesus Christ out of us. So what we're going to see as we go through this series, again, to sum up before we get into the first lesson today, it's not about keeping a list of rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts. It's about loving God and others and even ourselves, because some of these sins have an emotional component to it. You're going to see that today in this first one. It's about loving God. It's about loving God, loving others, loving ourselves, and the, the way that we succeed in all of these is by connecting into a God who loves us. The reason we can love God and our neighbors and ourselves and our spouses and our kids and our parents, the reason we can do that isn't because we work really hard to do it to be a good person to overcome these sins like a Pharisee thinks about it, but instead it's because being connected to a God who is defined by love, being connected to a God who is defined by love, he's not defined by rules. Being connected to a God who's defined by love helps us to love like he does. And that's the opposite of sin. The opposite of sin is love. And so with that in mind, chew on that for a while, for, th for seven weeks. Let's jump into the seven deadly sins. Here's a listing, because probably many of you don't know this list. Pride, that's what we're going to talk about today. Envy, anger, gluttony. We're going to do that one on Thanksgiving weekend. <laughs> really, we are. <laughs> but we're going to do it after Thanksgiving, okay? We're not that heartless. We're not going to do it before Thanksgiving. We're going to do it after when you're just fat and happy and most of the turkey is gone, right? So then we're gonna be like, now it's time to talk about gluttony, right? So make sure you're here for week four. And lust and sloth, which is my favorite one. We're gonna do that one last. Next week we're gonna do greed, but the seventh one we're gonna do sloth. And yes, this is gonna lead up toward Christmas, but we're gonna put a little Christmas spin on all of this because it's about love, right? And so all of this can connect into some of the Christmas stuff we're gonna do. We've never done the seven deadly sins at Christmas time, but we're going to try it this year and we're going to see how it goes. But today we're going to start with pride, so let's jump in. And I want to start with the definition. Here's the definition of pride. Pride, this is from the dictionary, pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. Now some of you are like, well, that doesn't sound that bad, right? You should have pride in your work. You should have you should have pride in your family name. You should have pride in your church. I hope you have pride if you call Alpine your home church. I, I hope you, you wear some t-shirts around and, and I hope you have some pride in your home church. So pride isn't always bad, right? It's kind of like all these sins. They're not, 
They're not always bad. A lot, all these sins actually, there's, some, there's a root of good around all of it, but, but there's a line that you cross where it becomes sinful. A second, again, just dictionary definition, a second definition of pride is a consciousness of one's own dignity. And again, that's not a bad thing to be conscious of your dignity, to recognize your dignity and your self-worth, but at, at a certain point you cross a line and it becomes a sin. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Here's the first point. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Or you can find all of this online at PursueGod.org. This whole series will be posted there for your small groups, for your families, so you can talk about it at home or even with a mentor. Pride is a, a false pathway to something good. And here's the good thing, self-worth. See, self-worth is a good thing. A sense of dignity and self-esteem, young people, is a good thing. But pride is a false pathway to that good thing. We're going to see that over the next few weeks, is that these sins are false pathways to something that's good. This is how Satan works. Satan's not very creative. He doesn't create. God creates. Satan mimics. Satan parodies. And so Satan takes this thing that's a good thing, self-worth. He knows that we want it. He knows that we need it. And then he tries to get us to get it through sinful means. And pride is the sinful means to try to get self-worth. And here's why. Because it makes dignity, self-worth, self-esteem, positive self-image. There's other words I could use, but I'm running out. It makes it makes all of that good stuff something that we try to build on the basis of our own goodness. So I've, I've, I want to feel good about myself, so I try to find something inherent in me that makes me feel good about myself. Does that make sense? Now again, if you're new to church, you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that how self-worth works? Isn't it based on your own goodness? Isn't it based on your own self-image? Isn't it based on you, your grades or your hair <laughs> or your height or your look, whatever your thing is, right? Like, isn't it based on something inherent in you? Well, that's what I want to answer today. And if you want to open your Bibles, our text for today, our main text is Luke chapter 18. This is where Jesus talks about this. This is where all these ideas come from, by the way. We're not making this up. It comes from Jesus. And it says there in verse 9 that Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. In other words, Jesus told this story. It's called a parable. Jesus told this parable to prideful people. And before you think that this is for someone else, just, just for now, just remember it's for you. Let's just let God deal with us first and let him deal with other people on their own terms. But for, for all of us today, this, is, this sermon's for, for you, it's not for the other guys, for you, okay? Even though you're probably the humblest person you know, just trust me, the pride sermon is for you, if that's you. Jesus told this story to people who had great confidence in their own righteousness, and they scorned everyone else. He says this, two guys walk into a bar. That's actually not what it is, but it sounds like that. Two guys walk into a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, like, like the guys we were talking about earlier, who are just think about religion in terms of rules and lists. One was a Pharisee, and the other guy was a despised tax collector, like, like the lowest that you could possibly be, because Jewish tax collectors collected taxes 
from the Jews on behalf of the Romans, and so they weren't really very well-loved. So this is, this is like the scummiest person you could think of, and that's why Jesus picks him in the story. And he says this, the Pharisee in verse 11, the Pharisee, in verse, the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Now, you can't really imagine someone doing this, but a lot of times Jesus' parables were, were kind of exaggeration to try to prove a point, right? Like you couldn't actually imagine someone doing this, being so publicly arrogant. We've never heard of anyone like that, have we? Maybe you know some people who are so publicly arrogant, you're like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe, you're acting like a junior higher. But here he is, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. <laughs> this is the funniest part. And I'm, I'm sure Jesus told it like this. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. So here this Pharisee is. He's, it's interesting. It says he stood by himself because one thing you need to know about pride is it will always isolate you. Maybe not at the beginning, but at the end of the day, pride will isolate you because no one's as good as you. No one's on your level. So proud people are always standing by themselves at the end of the day. And they're pointing at other people saying, I'm not like that guy. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. Now if, you, if you've lived long enough in life, you would, you would have learned this lesson. And those of you who aren't old enough to have learned this lesson, pay attention to this. Proud people are usually the most insecure people you'll ever meet. And pride is the thing that they're using to try to cover up their insecurity. In football, you can tell by looking at the person who is making such a big deal of the touchdown he just scored. That person doesn't score a lot of touchdowns. He, he's never been there before, so he doesn't act like he's been there, right? The guys that I love the ones that score a touchdown and they just walk over to the ref and hand them the ball and they go back to the bench. And they probably scored two more touchdowns that game and that's how they always act. Those are the guys I like. These are the guys God loves. God loves that humble person. God is against Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> you just need to know this. He is against, he is fundamentally against Aaron Rodgers. Now I'm a Bears fan, I'm from Chicago. So... <laughs> I just feel very strongly about this today. And I've got 15 minutes left and I wanna just talk about that. But that's, that's, that's what happens is those people, they're, what they're doing is they're, 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 they want to feel worthy, right? This is the point, they wanna feel worthy and they, they think that the pathway to their worthiness and their self-esteem and their dignity and all that, all that stuff, they think the pathway to that is rooted on their effort, their goodness, their ability, their stats. The problem with that is it never works. It might work for a moment, it might work for a little bit, but it never works long term. That's what Jesus is trying to get to. Instead, here's the second point. The opposite of pride is obviously humility, 
But I want to give you this definition for humility in contrast to the pride that we just saw. Humility is being secure in our standing with God. There's that word secure. It's being secure in our standing with God, but here's why. On the basis of Christ's goodness alone, not on the basis of your... This is a Christian definition of humility. My sense of self-worth and value and security is not connected to who I am or what I can do or what I can bring to the table. Religion says something else. Religion says, I need to get to God on my, on my merit, on my goodness. Christianity says, Jesus did all the work for me. There's nothing left, left for me to do. So only humble, truly humble people can be Christians. Because there's, there's, that's why pride's at the top of the list of the seven deadly sins, because pride is the thing among all of those sins that will most keep you from Jesus, because if you are proud, you, fundament, you fundamentally cannot receive the gospel, because the gospel message is you can't save yourself. Paul expresses it here in Ephesians, and think of this, Paul used to be a Pharisee, but take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, a guy who used to be a Pharisee. He, he, he comes to this realization of this gospel message, and here's how he, he articulates it. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. And just in case you still don't get it, he says one more thing about it. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Again, these words are spoken by a guy who had this epiphany, having been a very arrogant Pharisee. He, he met Jesus, and he realized, as he says it later on in Philippians, one of his other letters, he says, all of, my, all of the things that were to my credit are like dung. They're like feces. All, all of the accolades that he had built up in his life as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, he says all that stuff is nothing. And then he ends up joining this band of tax collectors and fishermen, humbly joining this band and writing things like this because he realized that his real value and dignity and sense of self was all tied up in what Christ did on the cross for him, not in what he could do for himself. And this, this is why this... Sin is so important to understand and combat in our lives. Now let's go back to that story from Luke 18. So we already saw the Pharisee in the first part of this, but now Jesus continues in verse 13 and he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and he prayed like this. He said, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. What a contrast. The Pharisee is arrogant, peacocking around, and the tax collector's over there saying, yeah, the, yep, the Pharisee's right. I'm a sinner. I'm worthless. You are worthy. I'm worthless. And here's, what, here's how Jesus finishes this. He says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. And then the, the moral to the story we've underlined, he says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. 
And so what he says is, if you want to really have, if you want to have self-worth, if you really want to have value in your own eyes and in the eyes of other people, and, and we should all want that, we need that in our souls, we need that. We, self-esteem is a good thing, self-worth is a good thing, I want to make sure you understand that. But if you try to base it on your goodness, you'll never get there. But if instead you recognize that you are everything in Christ, then you will get there. And that's what Jesus means when he says that, the, that the, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, Aaron Rodgers, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That the real pathway, the true pathway to security and your sense of self, the true pathway to that is humility. I want to end with this last thing because it's important for you to understand that the antidote to pride is not self-hatred. Some people say, okay, man, I feel convicted right now. I have been that person before. I'm more like the Pharisee than the tax collector in that story. I recognize that about me. And so some people go from here, these, these proud people, and you think the opposite of that is I need to hate myself. That's not the opposite of pride. The pathway to humility is not self-hatred. That because what, what, what's at the root of that still? Self. Pride is centered on self, and self-hatred is centered on self. It's, Satan wants just, he just wants you to stay centered on yourself. He doesn't care how he does it. So, so pride is all about being centered on self, and self-hatred is related to pride. It's a part, it's a sibling to pride, it's not the opposite of pride. The opposite of pride, the antidote to pride, is actually self-sacrifice. Like if you want to defeat pride in your life, the spirit of pride in your life, don't just look at the mirror and, and speak badly about yourself. If you want to defeat pride in your life, look outward and sacrifice yourself for someone else. Find someone to serve. And we see this most clearly in Jesus' story himself. So let's finish with this. In John chapter 13, and this is, this is a great story of, of Jesus in the Last Supper. We actually just took communion together, so that's the context for this whole thing. Before he went to the cross, in John 13, verse 3, it says that Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. And so he got up from the table, he took off his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. Now, just quickly, this, this story was shocking to them 2,000 years ago because this is the most degrading, just about the most degrading thing that you could do 2,000 years ago. And today in my home, this is definitely the most degrading thing you could do if you would just see my feet. Like, you would not want to touch my feet. Just trust me. This is so degrading to touch somebody's feet, to wash somebody's feet. And Jesus did it on purpose. He didn't just wash 11 of their feet, 11 disciples' feet. He washed the 12th one, Judas. And just a few minutes after this, he, Jesus points out that Judas is going to betray him. And mind you, Jesus even washed Judas' feet, knowing that Judas would betray him. But what I want to point out to you is just one word. There's one word in here that just really jumps out at me today. See, it says this. That first line says this. Jesus knew who he was. 
Jesus knew his authority. Jesus knew his dignity. Jesus knew his self-worth. Jesus knew his identity. Jesus was fully secure in who he was. So, that's the word. So, he got up from the table and served and did this incredibly degrading, humbling thing. Jesus knew who he was, so he did this. Notice it doesn't say Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew his value. Jesus knew his dignity. Jesus knew his identity. But in spite of that, he humbled himself and did this other thing. It doesn't say that. See, what, what's happening here, what John is doing is he's connecting these two ideas. He's saying your, your healthy sense of identity naturally results in you serving. And what that means is the humblest people around, it's really easy to identify them. They're servants. The most arrogant, prideful people around, it's really easy to identify them. They never serve. They don't get in the game and serve anywhere because life's all about them and they're above it. But this is this paradox of the kingdom of God is that, that having a real sense of self frees you to serve somebody else. And see, that's why pride is so detrimental because if you don't serve someone else, then you can't really love them. And pride will isolate you and keep you from serving someone. And humility will draw you into relationship with other people, a relationship that's, that, is, that is characterized by sacrifice and real love. And that's what Jesus did. So if you want to fight pride in your life, and I hope you do, then find somebody to serve. Humble yourself, be like Jesus, and find somebody to serve and recognize that your identity is in Jesus and what he's done for you. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would help us to understand this truth and to apply this to our lives. And God, I pray for all of us, Lord, I, we, we all can identify with the Pharisee in that story but God, I pray that we would, the more we know you, the more we walk with you, the more we're in relationship with you, the more, the more we sit at your table, so to speak, the more like you we will become. Father, I pray as we really understand the depths of your love, that it would cause us to be more loving and that that would destroy pride in our hearts. And so, God, we look to you for that. We recognize that you and you alone are the key to our victory over any of these sins, but especially the sin of pride. So free us from that today for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.